Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If Google or Apple or Amazon were to shut down, some malicious hacker managed to get into their systems and absolutely crash them for 72 hours. How functional would we be as a society? Professor of Public Affairs at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. Previously Managing Director of the New York City Economic Development Corporation under Mayor Bloomberg. Previously Director at the World Economic Forum. Previously McKinsey Consultant. Currently our esteemed guest for the hour. Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson. Since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Princeton University, Stephen Strauss, the John L. Weinberg, Goldman Sachs & Co. Visiting Professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Woody Woo, as it were, where I graduated <laughs> in 1998. I would oftentimes take a Hoagie Haven sub over there, but this is not something the dear prof wants to be seen with tonight. Uh, the place <laughs> has changed a lot. It's almost been 20 years, and I'm so grateful, sir, that you are joining us. I'm very pleased and honored to be on the show. So talk to me. I mean, your byline is all over the place. Your bio <laughs> is all over the place, as I kind of flick to at the top of the hour. Where do you, what, what, would you, what would you introduce yourself today in a cocktail party to someone as a, a, a public affairs professor, a policy professor, a politics watcher, an economy watcher? Um, we are in an unusual time in history where kind of everybody is a pundit and whatnot. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I think I'm one of those people who never quite decided what I wanted to be when I grow up. So far, I've been a computer programmer, an investment banker, a uh, management consultant, uh, an academic, a uh, public servant, uh, and a not-for-profit executive. So I've certainly gotten around. I think I'm beginning to run out of careers at this point. Let me start with uh, the thing that's on the top of everybody's mind right now, our president and our president's yeah, well, Twitter well, handle. And you're an active... Twitter person, that's where I met you, and that's where everybody's watching what the, the president says, and it's an unusual kind of window into the id and, mm. and ego and superego of a person when they kind of come out and and say things like this and, and put up to the peer review of, of everyone around the world effectively. Right now, we're talking about the Sweden incident, as it were. There's a, a, a curious reverb in Donald Trump saw something on Fox News with respect to Sweden's immigration problem, and, and he talked about, look, look, I don't know, the Sweden incident, which then became a hashtag on Twitter and took on a life of its own, not unlike the Bowling Green massacre. You've you've worn many hats in your career. And when you step back and look at this, how, if at all, would you encapsulate it? Oh, I mean, do you mean the narrative of Trump, the Twitter, the intersection that we've gotten to? The whole works. Um, well, I mean, you know, uh, how do I phrase it? We got what we voted for. Well, I didn't particularly vote for him, but um, we have a president who had no governmental experience, um, who, shall we say, was a reality, shall we say he was a reality star, reality TV star. Uh, he was the birther in chief, if you remember uh, the whole birther movement, much given to conspiracy theories. Um, and uh, that now appears to be who we've got as president. <laughs> So what do you think motivates the man? I mean, if it's not rolling up his sleeves in policy minutiae, I mean, this weekend he went back to Florida for a rally, which it seems pretty pretty <laughs> soon to go back to that well for kind of moral support and whatnot. Others might have been more you know, intensely focused on the first 100 days agenda, especially when you have majorities in both houses. Um, but you get the impression that he's leaving this to other people. <laughs> like He'd rather not be bothered with those details. Um, we did not elect a policy wonk. I mean, you know, let's just be honest. Um, you know, whatever you may think of, uh, you know, either Obama or even George W. Bush, who people joked about as not being that much of a policy wonk. Well, you know, Bush's father had been president of the United States. He himself had been governor of Texas. You know, he was kind of into this stuff. Um, 
as we could easily see from the campaign trail, uh, Trump was not into this stuff. Hmm. So regarding doing the rally, actually, I'm slightly more sympathetic on that. Look, part of the job of a president or a governor is indeed rallying the troops. I think it would be it would be more effective from Trump's point of view if he knew what he was rallying them for. Um, both he and the Republicans maybe taking it to a somewhat different level. You know, they've won the election. They actually have to now govern. And they seem to be having trouble dealing with that. They still seem to be wanting to run against Clinton or Obama. And it's like, look, guys, you've got the House, you've got the Senate, you've got the presidency. What is your proposal for what you're going to do to replace Obamacare? And having spent six years telling us how terrible Obamacare is, they're suddenly like, oh, damn, now we actually have to do something. <laughs> so, so it's almost the case of that that dog finally catching the pickup truck. <laughs> yeah, no, it, well, the analogy that keeps going through my mind, uh, horrible analogy, but, uh, you know, imagine the uh, teenage son or daughter or niece suddenly getting the car keys and the parents have gone away for the weekend and not quite sure what to do with the house. You know, do I have a party? Do I, you know, do my homework? <laughs> they just, they're a bit all over the place. So what's gone on here? You've been an investment banker in your past life too, and we've had an enormous rally in markets mm-hmm. since the shock after election night. I think where, where people stopped and said, wow, um, you're going to see potentially a huge amount of deregulation. Uh, forget about Obamacare. Put that aside for a minute. But the tax cuts can be great. You might see more relief for investors on a capital gains level. What what is what exactly is this market romancing, Professor? Um, I, you know, I have to admit, I'm not too sure. Um, if you were to ask me, looking at this market quite objectively. Uh, we're looking at levels in terms of P.E. ratios that we haven't seen since around the 2007 peak. We are looking at a situation where, you know, profits are, again, getting close to peak levels. And then you look around the world and it's like, well, Trump might actually start a trade war with Mexico, with China, uh, conceivably the uh, He and his team seem to be interested in having, well, breaking up the EU. So if you're asking me, I'm not quite clear why this market's so enthusiastic. But they're supposed to be efficient if they they detect that something is amiss or that there's an outsized risk of this happening. Why would they send prices higher first and then ask questions later? Well, I mean, you could say the market's efficient, but um, how do I phrase it? If you bought stock, um, let's see. Uh, just before the uh, the internet debacle in 2001, uh, and then the market dropped in about a year by about 50%. So, you know, if you look at the time, there really wasn't any incredibly new piece of information. Right. Look at the look at the most recent, you know, debacle 2007 2008. It was just sort of a suddenly of people all looking around and saying, "Oh, damn." Um, this stuff is overpriced. Um, you know, in a sense, one point of view is stock markets trade on fundamentals. Another point of view is stock markets trade on a belief of not so much the fundamentals of the market, but just, just do I think someone else will buy this from me at a higher price later on? Right. Just the speculative aspect there. Yeah. I just keep looking at this and going, we've got to be closer to a top than to a bottom. And it's been going on for the longest time. We've had several guests on this show, and and kind of risk on has been on for a long time. I mean, we've had <laughs> moments close to corrections, uh, moments close to to not not really close to bear markets since 2011, and now mm-hmm. six years have transpired. The Fed has been uh, very close to zero for most of those six years. I mean, you do get signals that they're going to proceed with rate hikes, however many this year, maybe on a measured basis. I don't know if there's going to be a repeat of 94 where they really have to ratchet up rates again. And then you throw into that mix the fact that everybody is paying attention to every tweet emanating from the White House. <laughs> and that, well, uh, there are psychologists out there that are saying the majority of their business right now is is counseling patients about <laughs> you know, political PTSD. And and you just wonder about that disconnect. I mean, I log into my account. It's it's enjoyable, once again, to log into my my uh, brokerage account and my 401k and my IRA account. And I, I kind of feel a little guilty about that. Am I, am I not mindful of the risks that I should be mindful of? Well, I mean, 
uh, <laughs> look, I'm not, I do not give particular stock market advice on any individual stock, but just moving away from the stock market, um, Trump during the campaign openly speculated about uh, defaulting on the national debt. But, you know, he didn't see why we wouldn't renegotiate the debt. He renegotiated the debt on all of the stuff he I borrowed. mean, he's got – yeah, I know, but he's got Gary Cohen. Uh, you know, he's got Steve Nutchen uh, around him. He's got a bunch of people that would – that are backstops to something like that happening. It's kind of like Hugo Chavez can certainly talk the talk, but in the end he didn't well, default, right? Well, no, and all that's true. But what I'm just saying is markets also trade on people's perceptions. China and Japan, between them, own several trillion dollars of U.S. debt. Are they one morning going to, you know, Trump's going to do one of his tweets on some topic or another, and whoever is the uh, head of the Bank of Japan or Bank of China looks at his balance sheet and says, why am I holding $2 trillion from this country? Well, talk talk to me about that, because we've asked, we've asked our guests before. We've had Jim Chanos on the show. And mm -hmm. we talk about this idea of, could your bond vigilante be a China or a Bank of Japan? Mm -hmm. Or uh, you know the, the the European Central Bank or London or one of these players out there, nobody can afford to because the U.S. dollar is still the ultimate redoubt of safety. It's still the mm -hmm. ultimate reserve currency. If China, if if they got into the worst rhetorical battle, right, uh, Beijing and and Washington D.C., and you know we entered another new leg of the Cold War with them, they could not afford to dump treasuries. They are, they are, I don't want to call them currency manipulators. I don't want to take the rhetorical bait, but they have to keep their currency cheap in a way to keep their exports competitive, to keep that that economic furnace chugging and churning lest the street rise up, right? Well, uh, let me split that into a couple of different pieces. Um, if you go back to 2007, and, and I was, you know, involved uh, – at the time I was with the World Economic Forum, I was at Davos, et cetera. Nobody at Davos, as you went into the financial crisis, was expecting it was going to be in subprime. If you go back to that period, everyone was worried about hedge funds of all things. Right. So prediction number one is whatever causes the next crash or bear market, it's probably not going to be something we're talking about right now. Uh, sorry to be a disappointment. Um but coming back to the question of you know China, look, at some point, if you get worried enough, they may decide to start liquidating their portfolio, diversifying their assets. And you know the euro is a big currency. That's certainly an option. Um, and that would certainly trigger a rise in U.S. interest rates. Hmm. Take me back to your experience on Wall Street. And mm -hmm. maybe how much the universe has changed, I guess, in the in the several years since. Walk me back because you've had a you've had a pretty eclectic <laughs> a la carte resume as I flick to at the top of the show. Um, I I worked I worked on the street uh, after '98, between '98 and 2000. So you could say that my coming of age was you know the Russian currency crisis and LTCM and emerging markets collapsing while the internet was booming. And we've since had several cycles after that. I mean, mm -hmm. for a long time, emerging markets were the cat's meow, and you could not sell anybody a large cap quality United States company. And that's really reversed right now. And everybody out of, out of 2008, 2009 said, how could the United States ever come out of this again? We've completely lost stature, completely lost clout. Um, th there's a ratchet effect in that we're never going to come back from this. And lo and behold, we've come back from it. And mm -hmm. you might be able to, you know, shoot darts at the unemployment rate and the inflation rate and whatnot. But by and large, we are back to some degree of normalcy. What is Wall Street exactly compared to what it was when you were there? Talk to me. Well, let's see. Uh, I joined, I first, my first job on Wall Street was circa 1980, uh -huh. um, which I, you know, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I think the Dow was about 800 at that point or 900. Right. Um so there are two things, you know. My and tell me where age. tell me where interest rates were in 1980. You must oh, I mean, remember. Were, there was a wonderful quote that uh, somebody, I think it was the German Chancellor, had come up with, that interest rates had reached the highest point that they'd ever been to since the time when Christ first walked on the earth. <laughs> um, I actually put my first bonuses into tax exempt bonds, and some of those bonds had, were at like 14 or 15 percent. Wow. 
<laughs> I just so, remember, you know, my we we came here from Iran to the United States, and my dad would take me to American Savings and Loan, and they'd give me a an alarm clock, and uh, a blender, and uh, you know, a teaser CD for sixteen, seventeen percent. I mean, where where is that all gone? You walk into a B of A right now, that you can't get time of day. But it, but it does bring me back to my earlier yeah. point that you know interest rates effectively are about as close to zero as you could imagine them going. In you know some European countries have from time to time even had negative interest rates. So I just got to believe the uh, bull market in fixed income is finally coming. To but an you end. know what that that wolf has been cried so many yeah. times. If you pick up any issue of fortune or money or kips or anything at the beginning of the year, it's like this is the year that the bond bull dies. <laughs> you know, thirty year run. There's like twenty five year bond great bull run. Thirty year, thirty five years, and at some point, it's like waiting for Godot, isn't it? Well, there's an element of that. I think it was uh, John Maynard Keynes who made a quip about the market can be wrong for a much longer time than you can afford to be wrong. Um, so, again, I go back to the point of I'm not saying it's this year. I'm not even saying it's next year. I'm simply saying we've got to be closer to the peak than we are to the bottom. We're joined by Stephen Strauss, professor at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, good sir, I want to talk more about fixed income and the interest rate landscape and central banks because now you don't have necessarily uh, with the President Trump and – Janet Yellen on the same page. She's not his appointee. They have telegraphed some hostility to interest rate policy. I don't know what it is. There might be more of an onus on fiscal stimulus now that the White House and the Senate and the House are controlled by the Republican Party, that there isn't going to be a log jam. Is there going to be a divergence? Uh, do, you, do you foresee the Fed having to come in and really having to exert its, its autonomy and to ratchet up rates? Um. You know, in the next few months, maybe yes, maybe no. If you're asking me some point over the next few years, uh, is are Trump and the Fed going to end up having a collision? My bet would be yes. Uh -huh. Whether that collision is going to be over interest rates, that's one possibility. The Fed also has extensive regulatory powers over the banks. Um, that's another possibility. Uh Let's have believe actually one of the GOP congressmen wrote a letter to Janet Yellen essentially telling her to uh, stop meeting with the European bank regulators. Is that and even legal to, to kind of go in and say don't meet with them? I mean, I, 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 I don't mean, understand. You're supposed to be an autonomous body. Well, you can write anything you want. I could write a letter to Janet Yellen, you know, saying, you know, please stand in the corner and look at the wall. Uh, I would not write such a letter. I mean, <laughs> but uh, is it legal? Yeah, it I mean, I think she sent back a very polite letter saying, you know, it's part of our normal regulatory function to do this. Here's the statute. I think she avoided tactfully saying, and you know, you can't you can't stop me. Um, the flip side, though, is the Fed is also a creature of the U.S. government. You know, you talk about its autonomy. Its autonomy lasts as long as the Congress chooses to let it last. Hmm. I mean, they can change the law anytime they want. Are we really – I mean, go back to your beginning, your coming of age on Wall Street in 1980, and there was a lot of fear in the in the early 90s and late 80s, the early 80s of, of bond vigilantes. I mean, people who would punish the executive branch or the legislative branch for fiscal profligacy. And is there a prospect of that right now? You see Bannon – you know, I remember one of Bannon's quotes was pretty pretty ill – <laughs> unfortunate quote is like, it could be like the 1930s all over again. He said he wasn't referring to <laughs> something bad, but that, that we could, you know, pump prime. We can really um, spend like crazy. When are you going to get long-term interest rates like this? Talking about infrastructure investment, um, we have not seen anything akin to, because especially because foreigners pile back into our uh, currency and our debt, of anybody punishing us for a fiscal profligacy. But should we, can we push that envelope for the sake of really stimulating this economy and locking in some infrastructure gains? Well, again, let me split that into a few different pieces. Um, in my mind, there's a very different, how do I phrase this? There's a difference between borrowing lots of money and spending it on pointless wars in the Middle East, uh, which is one thing we've done for about the last, whatever, 15 years or so. Um, and... You know, which, which, you know, I would argue is profligate 
Um, we, you know, we basically borrowed money for the Afghan and Iraq war. Uh, and that was wasted. I mean, you know, there's no particular value to, you know, that, you know, horrendous to the people who were involved in the Middle East and no real value to the U.S. financially. So that's one thing. So there's a, a liability and no asset. I think it's quite a different situation if you take that money and you make prudent, useful infrastructure investments that make the economy run more smoothly, that, you know, make it easier to get around. Uh, you know, the American airports are sort of a running gag for anybody who sure, has to sure. go through LaGuardia or Kennedy or Newark in comparison with uh, Say Munich, major airports. Munich yeah. or anywhere in Europe. Yeah, well, even, not even Europe. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went into, I was at the uh, the new airport in New Delhi, mm. which is a lovely airport, and then I had to fly back into Newark. And I was like, well, now which of these is the <laughs> underdeveloped country? <laughs> no, I mean, even even I flew through Panama, and I was impressed at that airport. Right. So, you know, uh, I think infrastructure investments, they create an asset. And, you know, yes, you could do stupid things with it. Assets that I think would be kind of useless, in my opinion, spending $20 billion on a border wall that no one thinks we need. Um, that, I think, actually is wasted money. Spending $20 billion judiciously upgrading uh, important airports and infrastructure, I think, will produce real value for the economy over time. Returning to sort of the bond vigilantes, I think that's that, frankly, is a bit overdone in terms of what I'll say is the normal deficit cycle. Um, I think the wild card with Trump is, you know, do people suddenly sort of say, well, we're not comfortable this guy's actually going to, we're not comfortable this guy in Congress are going to actually pay this debt off. Hmm. Uh, if I remember correctly, we've got another uh, debt ceiling coming up in March or April. I think it's late. I think it's April. Um the last few times that's happened, we've had a little bit of melodrama with the uh, with the more conservative wing of the Republican Party trying to hold up the government, saying, "You know, we want you to hope we want you to uh, cut X Y Z programs, or else we won't let you raise the debt limit." Hmm. I don't know if they'll repeat that again. You know, I see in your bio it says you advise governments on public policy issues in the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East and Asia. Hmm. You've been mm -hmm. cited, quoted, and interviewed by news organizations such as CNBC, The Guardian, The New York Observer, Mother Jones, The Dallas Morning Post, The Jerusalem Post, and other media outlets. You're a contributing op-ed columnist at the LA Times, USA Today, The New York Daily News, and HuffPo. So let me let me put it out this way. Um, Trump, Pence, and Bannon, or Kushner, you know, one of their New York City delegates, gets in touch with you over there in Princeton, says, listen, Prof, <laughs> I've been reading your stuff. I don't just follow Fox News. I really need your heartfelt advice um, from a management perspective, from a policy perspective, from a focus perspective. I mean, you've come at him from several directions. You've looked at the economy from several directions. How would you even prepare for that? What would you say? Um, they're not, they will not be calling me, uh, having given some of the things I've said about the Trump administration. Um, you know, the things that I would, would, I would say, um, I think infrastructure, as we've already alluded to, I've actually, it's one of the things he's raised. So I think there is a common ground to be done there. So wait, let's unpack that infrastructure, the, uh, the, the much ballyhooed, high-speed rail system on the eastern seaboard. I know mm -hmm. Princeton very well. I know that dinky. I know the Princeton Junction <laughs> train station. I know the peril and the opportunity. Imagine if Princeton was truly a bedroom community to Manhattan yeah. and Philadelphia. But no one can take train service for granted. Amtrak was something that was authorized by Richard Nixon not to exist 45 years into the future and be stopgapped along every time authorization comes around. How does one even take on something as huge, as massive as high-speed rail? Which, after all, he's not going to see the fruits of anything like this in four years or maybe even eight years. Well, let me, again, apologies. Let me split that into a couple of pieces. On the Northeast Corridor, if I had one wish list, if I got 15 minutes with Donald Trump, what I would say is we need the tunnel um, under the river that a major, major cause of delays at the moment 
is the existing tunnels were damaged by Hurricane Sandy. They are they were damaged. The they were damaged by Chris Christie in the end. I mean, he did the yeah, most damage. They were to damaged them. by a lot of. Let's things. be honest, right? Yeah, they were brilliant bits of engineering when they went in. They are literally a hundred years old at this point. Um, we need another tunnel. So, because if those tunnels actually go out of service, the whole Northeast Corridor is toast, at least as far as you know rail travel is concerned. Um, so that would be one thing. Uh, another item would be, you know, taking a good hard look at Amtrak. And one of the interesting issues for Amtrak is actually the Northeast Corridor, at least my understanding, is actually profitable for Amtrak. Right. A lot of what's what happens is their money is diverted to other parts of the country. Yeah. And that's for authorization if a person is in Wisconsin and does not want you know, that train station devoid of passenger rail travel, it's going to hold up the system. And so you get this cross-subsidy effect. You could take some gorgeous, scenic, you know, Pacific Northwest Amtrak <laughs> legs that are absolutely obnoxious in terms of what they require in, in cross-subsidy. But that's the unwieldy beast that it is until you kill it and sectionalize it and say the Northeast Corridor is its own profit and loss center. You can't see any sort of accountability. Oh, well, you can... You can. I mean, you could do this several different ways. Um, you could reorganize it into sort of a north northeast regional transit system. There's an old urban planning expression, boss wash, the boss wash corridor. Mm -hmm. The Boston, idea that Boston, Boston, Boston down to Washington is almost one continuous urban corridor. So you could do some very interesting things about high speed rail along the entire corridor. Uh, and it's not just sort of a New York, New Jersey issue. Uh, it would be nice to tie Rhode Island, and they're doing some very interesting things in Providence, much more tightly into the Boston corridor. Why, sir, would Donald Trump want to do a favor to states that did not vote for him? Well, <laughs> like I'm I being said, very cynical in this respect, right? Oh, I, I don't think he's going to come and talk to me. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I think it would be a very short conversation. But this is where I want to stress test this idea of, you know, suppose you are, let's go back to what Steve Bannon said, and suppose you are getting a blank check. It's the closest thing we have to a CCC, TVA, New Deal, pump priming thing. Of course, he's not going to get four terms in office, but um, you have Republicans completely in control. You have interest rates, long-term interest rates still at multi-decade lows. Um, this is your chance. If you don't take this chance, right? If you don't thread the needle. And this is where I want to know, like it could be spent on frivolous things, on, on pork barrel stuff. But if you were really going to target some things, I always thought about the tunnel under the Hudson River and the fact that so much of the economy, you talk about Wall Street and the people that come in every day to New York, how dependent uh, this island is, which is one of the biggest economies on the planet, on 100-year-old infrastructure that was apparently done in and, and handicapped by Superstorm Sandy. And then Governor Christie did not want to authorize, you know, a, a, a joint venture to kind of finance it. So that is potentially the weakest link in the economy. Right. And then you have others saying, well, who remembers that bridge? Was it in Minnesota that collapsed uh, 10 years ago mm -hmm. and everybody was supposed to pay attention to infrastructure? What about this dam in California that, you know, <laughs> you can multiply that times a thousand right. and I just don't see how any of that gets handled in an orderly manner. <laughs> well, by the way, are you asking my advice? Or you asked me what I think is going to happen. Those are two separate questions. I, where do you start? Where would you start if he pulled you in there and is like, listen, you're talking the talk on infrastructure. You've advised economies. You've advised corporations. You've, you're big in, in Manhattan, which is really the envy of of the Northeast and the East and, and, and how prosperous it is. Maybe it's too prosperous. What would you say? Okay. Well, I would suggest to him that one, his idea of doing this with tax credits is probably a bad idea, that at least from what I've seen in that proposal, it looks much more like a tax shelter arrangement as opposed to something that's actually going to finance real infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, two, I would suggest that the government needs to establish some good uh, cost-benefit analysis established, frankly, OMB has this stuff, but some objective criteria for saying, you know, we will invest in projects which to society will produce a return on our investment of you know, X percent. We can debate what that percentage is, but it just should be something substantially above uh, the borrowing rate, which frankly, in today's market, I think will be pretty easy to do. Mm -hmm. 
and then say, look, we're open for business. Um, you could do arrangements where uh, it would be things that are co-investments with the states, which I think would be a good idea of, you know, we, the federal government will put in, again, ratios can be decided later, but if you put in X, we'll put in 2X or 3X for projects that hit these criteria. Mm. Um so, you know, it's not the simplest thing in the world, but it's not incredibly hard. You know, if you went to most state governments in the U.S., you could get a pretty good laundry list out of the governor's office of these are some obvious things where we have an infrastructure problem. Yeah, but that's like – again, we've used this metaphor before. It's like sipping from a fire hydrant. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean there are all these airports that you could say are in a desperate situation. We are mm-hmm. really intimately familiar with LaGuardia. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Atlanta is dysfunctional in many times. BWI and and, mm-hmm. and Dulles. I mean, certainly O'Hare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other question in this is: Is the public truly the beneficiary of airport infrastructure upgrades? Or, for example, um, you know, the, the, right now the the airlines are very well consolidated. There were eight majors and now they're three or four. Their profits are high. Um, fuel costs have been stable. Is this something that's ultimately going to recourse to their benefit? Well, by the way, one of the things I would say with airport financing, whether you're doing it through a government entity or you privatize the airports, uh, the airports should be charging landing fees. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I'm saying, no, you're going to get this money back. Uh, and, you know, how do I phrase it? It's not just the airports. We keep using that example. It's bridges, it's tunnels, as you pointed out, it's dams in, uh, in California and other places, uh, schools in the United States, many of which still has asbestos in them. Uh, yeah, but what's Betsy DeVos? But, what's Betsy DeVos going to do? <laughs> Honestly, I don't even know where to start. Right. Well, again, you, I do want to emphasize. You're, you asked me, do I? Think I'm talking in the it? theoretical. Yes, here. This is this just illustrates how right. even we go back to you know the dog caught the the pickup truck, and at this point, what do you what do you do? Okay, here you go. Well, are. by the way, sorry. One other thing, you know, obviously, sorry, I should have mentioned this at the top of the list. Flint, Michigan, had that horrendous issue with lead in the pipes. Uh, there have been several studies pointing out, actually, we have several potential Flint, Michigans floating around. Uh, that, you know, infrastructure should get repaired, replaced. Um, so, no, I think you could make some very substantial investments uh, that would be, you know, return good return to the economy. That would not be just, you know, boondoggles, pork barrel. Do I have much optimism that the current administration is going to do that? No. Stephen Strauss, I want to transition to a uh, a great piece you wrote. Um, and I, where did I see it? it? Was in USA Today. Is has has big tech become too big? Was there too much clout concentrated in a handful of technology companies? And when I when I pull up these market capitalizations, you know, you said, is it time to break up the big tech companies? Mm-hmm. You see, Apple is the largest company in the world. You see. Um, Amazon is worth north of $400 billion, which would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. Amazon bigger than than Walmart? Are you kidding me? I mean, you hear this huge sucking sound now in retail and, and everywhere else. Obviously, Facebook, Google, parallel to the financial clout and the the, the dominance and kind of cash flow statement and, and balance sheet and income statement is – we have a lot of our information concentrated across these four companies. If you think about where photos are stored, um, you know, iCloud sharing, Amazon Web Services, uh, uh, retail merchant information, does this kind of border on a too big to fail or systemic risk situation? Uh, potentially. I, again, I, I did sort of make the quip earlier that the crash is going to come from something we're not expecting. So maybe these guys will be the source of it. Um, reasons I don't think they would be a reasons I do not believe that they themselves would be a uh, systemic financial crash. Simply put, they don't actually employ that many people. Um, but the types of things that could be a systemic crash related to them, uh, you think about how much of our society at this point is driven off of the web. Hmm. If you know, Google or Apple or Amazon were to shut down, you know, uh, some malicious hacker can't manage to get into their systems and absolutely crash them for 72 hours. 
Uh, how functional would we be as a society uh, without that backbone, without that infrastructure? Right. Uh, so that, I think, could be a major disruption. And in terms of the power of these companies, I think it's getting quite impressive. I mean, uh, Amazon is around 40% of all book sales. It's something like half of the incremental sales each year, half of growth in online sales are going to Amazon. So you've really got a company which is in a tremendous position uh, in terms of the people who supply to them to really beat them up on price. Uh, and how do I phrase it? Walmart, you know, which is the, the example that's often given vis-a-vis Amazon, there are some basic physical constraints on how big Walmart could grow. I mean, to grow Walmart, you have to keep building new stores. There are a limited number of locations that really fit their business model. Amazon, because it's online, in a sense, it can just keep growing until it absorbs the whole market. And to take it back to a conversation where we've been in a risk-on period for a long time, how much of of Amazon's freedom to operate and disrupt is a function of the fact that um, Wall Street doesn't pay all that much attention to its bottom line? If you kind of flick that switch on and off. That it's asymmetric mm-hmm. warfare. I mean, Walmart is judged on same store sales. Sears, mm-hmm. which is just on, on constantly on liquidation's doorstep, right? All these mm-hmm. other players are, and they're retrenching in Macy's, but Amazon is not. And Amazon's mojo might well be, you know, Amazon Web Services in the cloud and, and provisioning mm-hmm. small businesses across the country. And the loss leader, in fact, might be the things that other companies, other retailers demand as their bread and butter. Well, again, I, I think you, you need to split that in different pieces. I mean, one of the issues for Amazon is, and in terms of their argument to Wall Street, is we're growing, we're growing, we're growing. One of the issues for a lot of the physical retailers is, well, one of the reasons Amazon's growing is physical retail is not growing. Physical mm. retail in some areas is shrinking. Um, so they're basically telling two different stories. Certainly at some point, Amazon's going to come under more pressure uh, to turn a profit. But I don't see that as being a catastrophic shift for them. I suspect it'll be more of a gradual evolution. What about Apple? You know, I have to be honest. I am an, an Apple shareholder. I have, I'm, I'm a devotee <laughs> of the ecosystem. I have seven or eight Apple units in my house. I know I'm taking you a bit in the weeds here, but, uh, I think there is a parallel to, um, you know, Technology has, again, become a massive part of the S&P 500. It's approach mm-hmm. levels, percentages that we haven't seen since the year 2000. The NASDAQ has broken 5,000 again and then some. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be no end in sight to this uh, right now. There is a, it is a period of magical thinking. People are talking about a snap, <laughs> a snap IPO. I mean, you could value snap at $20 billion, which would be almost eight times what the New York Times is worth, right? There's a whole parallel thing going on right there. When you look at a company like Apple, what if they were to bring you in? I mean, this has become iPhone Corp, and they need <laughs> to diversify away from that. We're getting into a period of augmented reality, of services, of, Prof, we need your vision. What would you tell us at this, <laughs> you know, flying saucer-shaped campus in Cupertino? Oh, dear. Um, you know, that one I think I'm just going to take a bit of a pass. Um, there's a wonderful quote from Steve Jobs that, People and I and I give Jobs his credit. I think this was where he was truly a visionary. That if you'd set people down, whatever it is now, 10, 12 years ago, and said, "Design for me an iPhone or design for me the phone you really want," you would not have gotten people to say an iPhone. Uh, one of the issues for Apple is they've grown so big, so fast that you know. How do I phrase this? Exponential. To some extent, this also applies to you know Amazon, etc. At some point, all exponential growth comes to an end. General Motors was a wonderful growth stock in its day. IBM was a fantastic growth stock in its day. Um, Xerox was at one point a major growth stock. Sure. So, at what point these guys are no longer able to come up with some new invention and it moves on to someone else? Not sure. However, if I did end up with Tim Cook for a few minutes, I would point out to him that at the moment, he's highly dependent on production in China. If you flip over the back of every, well, I'm willing to bet every Mac product you have, or I'm sorry, every Apple product you have, it says something like designed in California, made in China. Sure. 
that's probably when you've got a president of the United States who's continually complaining about China and production in China, and you've got the Chinese government that's getting increasingly irritated. If I were him, I'd diversify that supply chain. How do you do that? And and now I'm now I'm pinging you as your you know the, mm. your, your McKinsey consultant years from 2001 to 2007, mm. right? Oh, that, that's a that's a solvable problem. I mean, you know, how you do need you have? But how do you even provision that in the United States or in India? You might be able to pivot to a Malaysia or a Mexico, but we, um, I mean, that ship has sailed. If you remember that New York Times package on the I economy, we we mm-hmm. don't have the ability. These jobs have have left. I mean, the entire supply chain has left the United States a long time ago. Well, again, you can split that into multiple pieces. Oh, my gosh. You split me into 20 pieces every time, Prof. Exactly. You're killing me, Prof. Um, First of all, and actually Apple, by the way, has been experimenting, I believe, with assembling some of their products in the U.S. If you wanted to move the supply chain back to the U.S., the first piece of it would be start doing end manufacturing here import the components from where they're made in other countries. That's easy. Right. It adds a bit to your expenses. Well, you know, it's pretty But if it buys you political inoculation, maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's worth it. And it also starts diversifying your supply chain. And then you start looking at the different pieces of your supply chain, you know, where the different parts of it are made. Um, general rule of the thumb, at least, you know, when I did outsourcing, you never really wanted one country to be more than about a third of your production. There's nothing magical about that, but just the point of it is you don't want to be in a situation where you're completely dependent on one country. Didn't it used to be as recently as 10 or 15 years ago that a host of contract manufacturers would service the PC industry, right? Mm-hmm. There, there were five or 10 of them. Now I only hear about Foxconn. Yeah. Um, and Foxconn is very intimately – I mean we we profiled them in Business Week. They went from being a very low-tech – they make plastic switches for black and white TVs for the mm-hmm. channel switches to then LCD panels. And the next thing you know is they have campuses and hundreds of thousands of employees mm-hmm. and they'll slaughter you know, 500 hogs for a cafeteria. And no one on the planet can kind of scramble the jets and manufacture to precision specificity like mm-hmm. these guys can. So how do you create that from scratch? Uh, well, by the way, you don't just need to. You could simply say to Foxconn, would you like to put up a plant in Texas? And here's a question. Would China, would Taiwan, would that entire part of the world be amenable to that? From a self-preservation perspective, would they say, you know what? We have to read the, we have to read the tea leaves, if you will. We um, have to co-locate from, in the United States. Yeah. I, well, how do I phrase it? Foxconn, at least as I understand it, is a for-profit company. If your major customer wants you to go build a plant somewhere, you go build the plant. From everyone's point of view, keeping the game going has a certain value. And if moving some production to the U.S. buys some goodwill, as you said, even if it's not the uh, most economically rational thing to do, I think there's a reasonable chance people would do it. Hmm. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, remember the Japanese opened – uh, Japanese and Germans opened some auto manufacturing plants in the U.S. But frankly, at the time they did it, it probably wasn't economically viable. It, but it wasn't, however, it. it wasn't so non-viable um, that they were unwilling to do it for some goodwill. We're joined by Stephen Strauss, professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. He was a director at the World Economic Forum, a McKinsey consultant, member of the Board of Advisors of First Door, a teaching fellow at Yale School of Management. Did you did you also play backup keyboard for New Order? Did I see that somewhere? No, in your no bio? skill at music. Uh. No skill at music at all, actually. <laughs> That's to- one career I've never tried. <laughs> Stephen, what about what about the Democratic Party right now? Um, you're seeing a you're seeing a battle for the soul of you know after this 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 wholesale blindsiding where everybody thought it was fait accompli that Hillary would win. You don't even have a leader of the party right now. People are reluctant. Do we do we coronate Bernie Sanders? You look in the House and it's Nancy Pelosi in the Senate. It's Chuck Schumer. Um, do we you know when I when I see this stuff being written, uh, the introspection on forums like Medium and, and elsewhere, they're saying, do we need to bring an outsider? Do we need to completely rethink this party? Or was 2016 just an aberration? I'm asking you this because you called this. You, you pointed out very early on a lot of the stuff that could coagulate in the Tea Party movement to a Trump candidacy, to a Trump presidency. And it seems like many of the party elders in, in, in the DNC completely whiffed on that. Well, 
they, in fairness, they didn't whiff that much. It's, it is helpful to remember that of 100,000 votes in three states had gone differently, which is not a big number of votes when you get down to it. We'd all be talking about the Clinton presidency and how she won by three million votes. Mm. So, you know, it wasn't like, the, you know, it, Trump and the GOP like to present this as some massive landslide or mandate, but it wasn't. Um, if if I was actually presented with the Democratic leadership to give advice to, which might which is more likely to happen than Trump, um, yeah, I'm not sure I'd be saying that much different than I think a number of other people pointed out to them. They need to rebuild the party organization at the state and local level. Uh, what is it? I think uh, two thirds of the states at this point are basically run by the Republicans. Uh, there are 28 congressional seats, I may be off on that number, where the Democrats didn't even bother running a candidate. Um, you know, if you, don't, if you don't run a candidate, you're not winning the election. That's a really key fact. So they need to think about, how do I put this? At the top level, I think the, the Democrats are well positioned for the presidency in four years. Uh, they got a majority of the vote this time around or I should say majority, but they got certainly more votes than the Republicans. But who who is the standard bearer in four years? Are you just taking a median white male senator? I mean, who who is the – I don't know who's uh, in control of the party right now. Well, I mean, if it was 2004, uh, a guy named uh, Barack Hussein Obama was not even on anyone's radar screen. Right. So I don't think you need to worry too much about who it's going to be four years from now. Um, and actually, I would argue to some extent from the Democrats' point of view, uh, in terms of the, you know, the game vis-a-vis -vis the Republicans, the game vis-a-vis -vis Trump, they're better off without a standard bearer. I mean, Trump would desperately and like to be running in opposition to someone. Hmm. The Republicans would like to be running in opposition to someone. Um, and in that sense, I think both Obama and Clinton have been very wise in doing the party a favor by just not rising to the bait. Now, talk to you me know, more it's... about the Clintons. You wrote a pretty fitting, you know, <laughs> obit <laughs> after the fact. I mean, what the, people were nostalgic to go back to a period of, you know, there was a manifest destiny that she was supposed to get her chance to run, that she was thwarted in 2008. What what were the lessons learned chiefly? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure that uh, how to put it, that nostalgia was shared much outside of the uh, outside of, say, the Northeast Corridor and a few other places in the U.S. In that sense, I do think the conventional wisdom is correct. I don't think Hillary Clinton was a candidate who really created huge, huge enthusiasm. It was Hillary the inevitable. Um, yeah, I think you know, the postmortem I did was fairly blunt, but. Uh, you know, on a number of levels, they were flawed, uh, or rather, she was a flawed candidate. Um, again, if it had played out a little different, I think she would have won. If they could go back, who should they have nominated? Should it have been Joe Biden? Um, I'm not sure they should have. If if you really could go back in time, you know, if I, if I had this magic wand and I could change things, uh, instead of having the Clinton Global Foundation being focused on, you know, Haiti, Africa, everywhere but the U.S., I would have made it a U.S.-centric organization instead of they're giving paid speeches to anyone and everyone who would pay them $300,000. Hillary and Bill Clinton should have been out every weekend talking at any high school, any community college in the Midwest that would have been happy to have them. Um, but I think if she'd done you know, even just those two things, they'd have won the election. Really? So yeah. if they'd focused on not forget about Appalachia, forget about West Virginia, you're just talking about. I mean, nobody expected Wisconsin and Michigan to go the way they did. Nobody, everybody thought that Pennsylvania was a lock. Right, and I, and I'm just saying, you know, instead of just assuming, hi, I've got these things and I can go out and collect, you know, three hundred thousand dollars a week for giving a speech. You know, look, I. I she didn't lose them by that much. I it, look, anybody can claim back, you know, a counterfactual, but I think there is a reason to believe that if they had truly just spent, you know, the time on the road in the Midwest hitting those places, uh, this election would have turned out differently. Mm. So that would have been, you know, let me emphasize two or three years before 
the actual election, just doing that kind of groundwork. Mm. Uh, again, I, by the way, Obama made a similar comment. You know, when he said it was something effective, like, look, a lot of an election is showing up. He pointed out all the time he had spent in Iowa uh, in 2007 that, you know, you have to go out and meet people. In the 10 minutes or so we have left, Stephen Strauss, uh, take me global. What's really on your radar right now? I mean, everybody's talking uh, about Putin's purported bromance with Trump. <laughs> there have been some provocations. Um mm-hmm. I wonder kind of where this plays out. There are so many moving parts. There are always moving parts. But when you look at a situation like Iran, is this regime there free to kind of be avoided and pilloried by Washington, especially in light of what Iran is doing in terms of the firewall against ISIS? Do you kind of have to first coalesce your enemy in the Middle East chiefly as Iran or as ISIS? I I think it's almost a binary decision for them. Um, Yeah, I actually think the U.S. government, <laughs> I would like to think the U.S. government can walk and chew gum at the same time. And, you know, it's not that unheard of in American foreign policy that you know, we have a problem with a country or a disagreement in one place, but manage to cooperate with them uh, in another. I mean, that was a fairly constant motif uh, with Russia through the Cold War. And certainly Ronald uh, Reagan and Iran. I mean, he sent them a what? He sent somebody a birthday cake and a Bible, I believe. He sent the Ayatollah. <laughs> is that famous story, right? Yeah. Um, I think Iran, uh, well, <laughs> this is a topic I suspect you know far more about as you know, your family is there, you have friends you know, who are more involved with it. But I tend to see it as a nation state, which you can therefore negotiate with. It's not really that much of a rogue actor. Um, it has things it wants uh, from the world system. Uh, but that's what so I'm going to bring I, in Bibi Netanyahu. And again, I know you'd like <laughs> to split these things apart, but you've written about him and we only have so many minutes left. <laughs> Israel Netanyahu, who was here, who backstopped Trump on a very trying week and appeared with him <laughs> and has been with him throughout. He is trying to convince this administration that its foremost priority should be in defanging Iran. Focus on Iran as an existential threat. The rest of the Middle East, in a real politic way, as you as you can tell, Saudi Arabia would love for the focus to be on Iran, right? Some of the other Arab countries there, Egypt, you know, has had on and off good relations with Iran. Now maybe they're more icy than they've been in the recent past. Um, you know, where does Israel fit into this whole thing? Meantime, they're they're potentially getting what they wanted for decades in their own self-determination on a one-state or two-state solution. Well, I mean, Israeli politics, we could be here all night. A um, couple of things I'd point out. Uh, Israel's coalition politics are horrendously complicated. If you look at Israel's foreign policy and military establishment, they were never as concerned with Iran as Netanyahu was. Sure. You know, many people in their establishment were saying, hey, we think the the deal Obama cut's a pretty good deal. You know, this has a lot of merits to it. And there's always been sort of an open question in Israel to what extent Netanyahu really believes these things or to what extent, uh, you know, the Iranian, uh, you should pardon the expression, bogeyman is a wonderful, you know, political device for him of, you know, we have this common enemy. We need to unite around this. Don't ask me too many questions about submarine deals and bribes and other stuff. Um, do realize Netanyahu's under a couple of criminal investigations in Israel. Um, so if you're asking my bet on the subject, <laughs> I have a suspicion Netanyahu in private has not been nearly as aggressive with Trump in terms of tear up the deal and start over. Mm. Uh, I think he wants the deal enforced, uh, which I think is correct. I mean, the deal should be enforced. But, you know, now that Trump is suddenly in office, you know, remember, we were going to be moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Yeah, and I I wonder if (laughs) if you subscribe to this idea that Netanyahu maybe behind the scenes has told him, actually, you know what, (laughs) take your time on moving that embassy. I just need some cover from my own, you know, my own my own right wing here. I just need to keep them at bay rhetorically. Uh, oh, yeah, but no, again, no, it's I, another example of be careful what you wish for. Right. No, I, I think very much the case. I mean, um, you know, Trump, you know, at one point, uh, Naftali, Naftali Bennett, uh, the Israeli 
ultra right wingers was talking about wanting to annex large chunks of the West Bank. Uh, and you know, from Netanyahu's point of view, I think he understands that would be a diplomatic disaster. So I think he was perhaps a little happy when Trump was saying, well, you know, those settlements, don't build any more of them. And, you know, don't build too much more. Remember, you know, he suddenly flipped his position on that. Right. And on the two state solution, you know, Trump off the cuff said one state, two state, who cares? Remember the next the next day or two or three days later at the U.N., the U.S. said, no, 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 we're still in favor of the two-state solution. So. And that, that actually, that is, that is, you know, to, to me, it's the most vexing thing where I'm kind of pulling my hair out is the, the dissonance from the different players. Like, you don't know where the buck stops. We've always said this about Iran where the, the, the grand leader might be saying something and the president could be saying something else and a speaker of parliament or reformist candidate could be saying something else. And suddenly we're getting that kind of, uh, you know, Triple, triple player, triple track out of out of Washington D.C. Here, you don't know where the buck stops. Yes, but in a bizarre way, that may be a good thing. Uh, maybe let me let me let me emphasize that word may. Um, uncertainty, if you're dealing with risk averse opponents, leads them to be more hesitant to do anything. You know, if you were dealing with Obama, you kind of knew how he would react to certain things. If you're dealing with Trump, you don't really know what's going to happen. And that, in a way, may make people very hesitant to find out. Stephen Strauss, in the few minutes we have left, uh, t- take me freestyle. What's chiefly on your radar? What should we be paying more attention to? What are you going to be writing about this next two weeks? <laughs> um, you know, I think things that I would suggest paying attention to, uh, kind of at a high level, the narrative in a lot of the um, – of the press, the mass media is Trump's incompetent. Uh, Trump doesn't know what he's doing, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, frankly, there's a layer of truth to that. But I also think another layer of truth is that if you look at Trump, he has a fairly shrewd communication strategy. It's radically different from prior presidents. Most presidents, you know, the first part of their of the first part of their term are trying to broaden the coalition. You know, you had uh, Obama was trying, you know, at this point in his administration to build coalitions with the Republicans. Bush was trying to build coalitions with the Democrats. Trump is only interested in communicating with his base, Hmm. and he is still doing that pretty well. You know, you see all these reports about, you know, Trump's popularity has collapsed. Look, his popularity was never that high. Let's not kid ourselves. But he is retaining the GOP base. And I think a lot of the stuff about, you know, don't listen to um, NBC, ABC, New York Times, they're fake news. You know, he's not trying to convince you or I that New York Times is fake news. He is trying to keep his hold on his base. Um, so how that plays out, that's going to be interesting. What does his base fray? When do you start to see people peel away in Congress and say, I can't, mm, I think this is a losing ticket going into 2018? You see, and that's the trick. I don't think you're going to see that. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think there's a very high chance you don't see that or you don't see it for some time. If you look at the Congress, particularly the House, very heavily gerrymandered, people are running in safe seats. I think Trump's going to keep his messaging laser focused on what he perceives to be his base. That base is basically the core of the Republican Party. So if you're a Republican congressman to publicly break with Trump means there's a chance that you're going to have somebody primarying you from the right and you're going to have Trump trying to get you out. And he's been pretty blunt about, you know, you cross me, I will have no hesitation about endorsing your opponent in a primary. What about those who are in a position theoretically to not care? I mean, a John McCain is 80. He's not going to run again yeah. in, in you know, five, <laughs> six years. He theoretically shouldn't care. A Susan Collins, I mean, what are they going to put up a primary opponent in Maine, you know, to thwart her? Uh, you, you've been getting murmurs out of um, Lindsey Graham. There are other people who, mm-hmm. in theory at least, don't have to be terrified of the bullying or the primary challenge. Where have they been? McCain... I think very publicly pointed out that he ran 13 points ahead of Trump in Arizona. Um, so, by the way, McCain's mom is over 100 and I believe still alive. Yeah, yeah. Don't, he Don't may be running him out. Sure. <laughs> but Lord love him. Uh, but 
you know, you're already seeing him being publicly much more willing to break, uh, particularly on national security issues. And yes, I agree with you. I think the Senate is more likely than the House uh, to start giving Trump a problem. You know, he's already seeing that with um, you know some of his nominees who've had to withdraw. Um, you know, he's won the big battles, uh, but actually, for that matter, you know, his nominee for the labor secretary had to withdraw. They barely got the woman through for the Department of Education. Uh, so I do think the Senate is going to be more the battleground. Stephen Strauss, professor at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. I am so grateful that you took the time to be with us finally, and I will I will catch you on the tweeters, as it were. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I enjoy your show and uh, look forward to uh, hearing future guests. Always. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One and iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Twitter at FullDRadio. Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.